Welcome back to Axioms of Liberty podcast, where we dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers to help you create a better foundation to understand your world. And today, back to chapter five of the Voluntarist Handbook. We're getting a double dose of episodes this week. Back-to-back releases. Got some time today to take care of some stuff, so I'm going to just knock this one out. So chapter five is titled, Do We Ever Really Get Out of Anarchy? By Alfred G. Suzanne. A major point of dispute among libertarian theorists and thinkers today as always revolves around the age-old question of whether man can live in total anarchy or whether the minimal state is absolutely necessary for the maximization of freedom. Lost in this dispute is the question of whether man is capable of getting out of anarchy at all. Can we really abolish anarchy and set up government in its place? Most people, regardless of their ideological preferences, simply assume that the abolition of anarchy is possible, that they live under government, and that anarchy would be nothing but chaos and violence. The purpose of this paper is to question this venerated assumption and to argue that the escape from anarchy is impossible, that we always live in anarchy, and the real question is, what kind of anarchy we live under? Market anarchy or non-market political anarchy? Further, it is argued that political anarchies are of two types, hierarchical and plural. The more pluralist political anarchy is the more it resembles market anarchy. The performance of hierarchical and plural anarchies is evaluated in terms of their ability to minimize the level of force in society. It is shown that plural anarchies are much less violent than hierarchical anarchies. We conclude that the real question libertarians must solve is not whether minimalism or anarchy, but which type of anarchy, market or political, hierarchical or plural, is most conducive to the maximization of freedom. Anarchy is social order without government, subject only to the economic laws of the market. Government is an agent external to society, a third party with the power to coerce all other parties to relations in society into accepting its conceptions of those relations. The idea of government as an agent external to society is analogous to the idea of God as an intervener in human affairs. For an atheist, a good analogy might be to assume that omnipotent Martians fill the role we usually ascribe to government, i.e., an external designer and enforcer of rules of behavior by which everyone subject to those rules must abide. However, that the idea of government exists is no proof of its empirical existence. Few of us would be convinced by an argument such as, I believe the idea of God is possible, therefore God exists. Yet, such is the structure of the argument which underlies all assumptions about the existence of government, that societies may have some form of organization they call government is no reason to conclude that those governments are an empirical manifestations of the idea of government. A closer look at these earthly governments reveals that they do not get us out of anarchy at all. They simply replace one form of anarchy by another, and hence do not give us real government. Let's see how this is so. 
Wherever earthly governments are established or exist, anarchy is officially prohibited for all members of society, usually referred to as subjects or citizens. They can no longer relate to each other on their own terms. Whether as merchants at a port, or a vigilante unit and its prey in the open desert or the streets of Newark, New Jersey. Rather, all members of society must accept an external third party, a government, into their relationships, a third party with coercive powers to enforce its judgments and punish detractors. For example, when a thief steals my wallet at a concert, I am legally required to rely on the services of members of a third party to catch him policemen and imprison him, jailers, try him, prosecutors, judges, and even public defenders, judge him, trial by a group of individuals coerced into jury duty by courts, and acquit or punish him, prisons and hangmen, at most. I am legally authorized to catch him, but I am prohibited from settling the account myself. Such prohibitions have reached tragicomic proportions, as when government punishes victims of crime for having defended themselves beyond the limits authorized by law, in short, I or any other citizen or subject must accept the rulings of government in our relations with others. We are required to abide by the law of this third party. However, such a third-party arrangement for society is non-existent among those who exercise the power of government themselves. In other words, there is no third party to make and enforce judgments among them, the individual members who make up the third party itself. The rulers still remain in a state of anarchy vis-a-vis -vis each other. They settle disputes among themselves without regard for a government or any entity outside of themselves. Anarchy still exists. Only where heirs without government, it was market or natural anarchy, it is now a political anarchy, an anarchy inside power. Take for example, the rulers of our own federal government. It is a group composed of congressmen, judges, a president, a vice president, top-level bureaucrats in civilian and military agencies, and their armies of assistants who together oversee the work of the millions of public employees who man the several federal bureaucracies. These individuals together make and enforce laws, edicts, regulations, and vast arrays of orders of all kinds by which all members of society must abide. Yet, in their relations among each other, they remain largely lawless. Nobody external to the group writes and enforces rules governing the relations among them. At most, the rulers are bound by flexible constraints imposed by a constitution, which they, in any case, interpret and enforce among upon themselves. The Supreme Court, after all, is only a branch of the government, composed of people appointed by and subjected to pressures from other members of said government. Moreover, their decisions are enforced by some other branch of government, the executive, over whom the judges have only authority. Further, the Congress, through vocal pressures and the manipulation of budgetary allocations to the judiciary, also exercises pressures which the judges must contend with. Similarly, congressmen have no third-party arbiters, either among themselves or in their relations with the executive. 
Furthermore, even the various federal bureaucracies and all their component parts are without a third party to govern their relations internally or externally. In short, looking inside the government reveals that the rulers remain in a state of anarchy among themselves. They live in a political anarchy. The anarchic relations of government officials can be illustrated in the following example. Suppose that a congressman manages to divert streams of money from the government's flows to his private estate. This is a crime, theft, the stealing of money. But from whom? From you? Me? Only in the sense that we were coerced into contributing to the public treasury, which the congressman viewed as booty. It was no longer ours. It belonged to someone else. But who? Why the members of the government who have the power to allocate these flows of resources? In short, the congressmen stole from other government officials, congressmen, bureaucrats, a president, etc. But what is done about the crime? Is the congressman publicly accused, indicted, and tried for his crime like an ordinary citizen who steals from another citizen? Sometimes. But what usually happens in a flurry of political maneuverings at high levels, mutual threats are delivered behind closed doors and forces marshaled against each other. Occasional battles take place in which either reputations are destroyed, money changes hands, or resources flows or access to them is altered. The hue and cry is soon forgotten. The congressman receives a clean bill of health by the prosecution or the charges are dismissed or not pressed, and the congressman wins re-election at the polls. Occasionally, if the infractor was a weak or declining public figure, or one much hated by his colleagues, he is brought before the courts, tried, and given a minimal or even a suspended sentence. In most instances, small fish near the bottom of the bureaucracies are sacrificed for the crimes of the higher-ups either directed, profited from, or sanctioned. But make no mistake, no third party, no government, ever made or enforced a judgment. The rulers of the government themselves literally took the law into their own hands and produced what outside the government would be considered vigilante justice. In short, society is always in anarchy. A government only abolishes anarchy among what are called subjects or citizens, but among those who rule, anarchy prevails. Figure 1 illustration is this said situation. The circle on the left shows a state of true or market or natural anarchy, in which all members of society relate to each other in a strictly bilateral transactions without third-party intervention. The circle on the right shows the situation prevalent under government. In the higher component, we see individuals whose relations among each other are no longer bilateral. All relations are legally triangular in that the members of the society are forced to accept the rule of government in their transaction. However, in the lower compartment inside the government itself, relations among rulers remains in anarchy. And we have two circles. Circle on the left shows three lines. Party A interacting with Party B, Party A interacting with Party C, Party A interacting with Party D. Strictly straight in between the two of them, nobody else intervening. And then figure two shows the same circle, but in the middle 
is a G standing for government, and then it's bisected by a line that goes across that separates the two sections of the semicircles. So in the middle, we have A interacting with B, but then there's a line that intersects, that bisects that line and goes straight to G. And the same goes for B and C's interaction and C and D's interaction. But then below, we have E and F still bilaterally interacting with one another with no lines interfering from G, which is government. Having shown that anarchy is not completely abolished by government, but reserved, so to speak, for the rulers only, among whom it is the prevailing condition, it is proper to inquire whether this is beneficial for society. Its proponents and defenders claim that without government, society would be in a state of intolerable violence. Thus, it is logical to inquire whether the effect of government is to increase, reduce, or in no way affect the level of violence in society. Is political anarchy less violent than natural or market anarchy? Minimalists argue that it is, provided government is strictly confined to the role of acting as a third party in property disputes. While government necessarily involves the use of limited violence, minimalists say the level of violence in a minimal state would be lower than that in a natural anarchy. So we have another figure, an X and Y axis. X axis is being violence and Y axis is being government. And we have like a sloping downward line from violence to the anarchy of minimum government intervention. The, the violent line slopes downward and then just falls off a cliff, goes straight down to the ground as there's only a minimal amount of government intervention. Figure two illustrates the minimalist idea. By providing the amount of government of the minimal state, the level of violence in society drops below the level in natural anarchy. Presumably judging from the vociferous anti-interventionist stand of the minimalists, if government grows beyond the size of a limited state, Either there are no further gains in reducing violence, and thus more limited government is pointless and costly in other ways, and or beyond a certain size the level of violence in society rises to meet or perhaps surpass the amount of natural violence. Same thing, same figure, X, Y axis, government minimal, violence on the X, and instead of that sloping line, when it meets the minimum government, it actually goes back up the other way, but it depends on how much violence we have, depending on there. It is it goes across bilaterally, and it continues back upward the other direction to where violence continues to increase the more government that we have. The, it says the broken lines represent possible effects on violence from enlarging government beyond the minimal state required. That violence under political anarchy might exceed the violence of a market anarchy is not inconceivable. Hitler's concentration camps and Stalin's gulags are evidence of violence in such proportions that one could hardly venture to say that natural anarchy would be worse than that. Similarly, the political anarchy of nation-states has produced interstate violence on such a scale that it must give pause to even to the most devoted disciples of Hobbes. 
A third view is possible and theoretical the most interesting. This view says that the relation between government, the substitution of political for market anarchy and violence, is qualified by a third element, the structure of the government. Measured along the centralization dimension, the more authoritative powers are dispersed among numerous political units, the more pluralistic the government, the more centralized the structure, i.e., the more authoritative powers are concentrated, the more hierarchical the government. Note that the more hierarchical the government, the more government is run on the assumption of an ultimate arbiter. In other words, the more centralized the structure, the greater the effort to create a single third party inside the government itself in the form of a godlike figure such as Hitler, Stalin, Mao, or Castro. Such a third party, however, remains in complete anarchy from the rest of his countrymen and the rest of the world. The more plural the politics of a country, the more the rulers behave without any reference to a third party, and thus the more society resembles natural anarchy. The less plural or more hierarchical the politics of a country, the more society appears to be ruled by a truly external element, a godlike figure sent from the heavens of history, religion, or ideology. A cursory glance at contemporary societies and recent history shows that, empirically, it is precisely those societies ruled by such an earthly personifications of government where the level of violence in the form of political repression, coercion, and intimidation is highest. In contrast, violence is lowest in societies with highly pluralistic politics, such as Switzerland. This is true even in the communist world. The more pluralistic communist politics of Poland or Yugoslavia are less violent than the more hierarchical politics of the Soviet Union. Similarly, in the Western world, the more pluralistic politics of the United States are less violent than those of Italy, where politics are much more hierarchical. But why would the degree of centralization determine whether political anarchy is violent in hierarchical states such as China or Cuba, and relatively peaceful in pluralist states such as India Costa Rica? The answer may be simply in the fact that centralized states are more likely to make mistakes than decentralized states. Political mistakes are in the form of wrong or false conceptions about the nature of bilateral relations in society and in politics, such as conceptions held about the relation between worker and capitalist in communist states. If judgments are wrong, they are not voluntarily accepted by one or both of the parties to the transactions. Under those conditions, the only way for the rulers to enforce their third-party conceptions is to use force, which under different conditions will or will not be resisted by the opposition. In a pluralist government, wrong conceptions about bilateral relations in society are less likely to occur. This is because there are numerous units independently interacting with each other and with the citizens and subjects so that more and better information about the effect of these judgments on bilateral relations exist. Moreover, wrong conceptions are more easily checked as various autonomous political units, each capable of marshalling political resources of their own, confront each other in a successive series of political transactions. 
In a hierarchical government, however, not even the members of the government are permitted to settle disputes among themselves. All relations are subject to the judgment of some supreme leader. Such a leader must maintain a vast network of spies and enforcers to accomplish such a superhuman feat. Of course, one man's ability to control the behavior of others is quite limited, and so even in Hitler's Germany, truly Machiavellian feudalistic deals were made right under the Fuhrer's nose. Naturally, such arrangements were prohibited so everyone lived in a state of fearful insecurity, not knowing when his enemies would succeed in turning Hitler against him. Whether this explanation is a good one or not, we still have with us the fact that Hierarchical politics are more violent than pluralist politics. But if society with a pluralist political anarchy experiences less violence than societies with a hierarchical or governed government, isn't it logical to inquire whether natural anarchy is less violent than political anarchy? Why should the relation between government and violence be so curvilinear? Isn't it possible that it is upward sloping all the way so that government always produces more violence than the market itself? We have shown that anarchy, like matter, never disappears. It only changes form. Anarchy is either market anarchy or political anarchy. Pluralist, decentralized political anarchy is less violent than hierarchical political anarchy. Hence, we have reason to hypothesize that market anarchy could be less violent than political anarchy, since market anarchy can be shown to outperform political anarchy in efficiency and equity in all other respects. Why should we expect anything different now? Wouldn't we be justified to expect that market anarchy produces less violence in the enforcement of property rights than political anarchy? After all, the market is the best economizer of all. Wouldn't it also economize on violence better than government does, too? And that's the end of that article. That one. Woo, boy, that's a banger. That's a fucking banger. I love it. That's such a good good one. Good one. Such a good one because we have to really understand, like, simply, like, the, 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 the circle, the circle diagrams is such a key metric because when we create this omnipotent entity that is government we just create this area where you the plebs have to deal with me but everybody else underneath that's in the government oh yeah well they can just kind of just do whatever they want and get away with doing everything and you can literally see this in society today how many times do we get to see where some bureaucrat is charged with like the Federal Reserve people not so long ago, they were charged with some embezzling of funds from whatever. And what did, what happened? They just got some fine. And okay, go ahead about your way. But if someone like you or I did, did that, we would be thrown in jail for life or some ridiculously obscene amount of time that wouldn't even justify the crime to begin with when if somebody else who lived within the government structure did it, they would just get a slap on the wrist and it's just the price of doing business. Like, there is when we create this government, we end up just creating a two-tiered structured system of you shall have rules that I do not have to abide by. And, you know, rules for thee, not for me. And this is the place we find ourselves in society today. And that last line, after all, the market is the best economizer of everything. So wouldn't it also economize on violence better than government does too? 
And I think that is such a key metric because everything is economic trade-offs. And we understand that violence on other individuals comes at a cost because we take the risk of losing our own lives and enforcing that violence onto other individuals. Like everybody takes this into consideration. Yes, there are irrational individuals. Yes, there are individuals who don't care about those costs. I'm not saying that those individuals will cease to exist in such a world where market uh, anarchy takes over. What I'm saying is that those individuals are going to be far less incentivized to go to such lengths if we have such a world where intervention stops and hinders those individuals from achieving the goals that they wish to achieve. Because we have to understand that most individuals are rational beings and the only reason why they are doing the things that they want to do is because they're taking the rational explanation that they have deduced in their own minds that they are limited in the ability to do the things they want in this world and this action that they're taking that is irrational to other actors in the system is the only rational action left to take to procure the things that they wish to do, whether it be feeding their family or taking care of themselves. Like they're just, that's just the way things work. And, uh, I really like that article. That was really good. I really think it was good. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Just a little short one to do today. I'm going to just wanted to pump one out. Another good one real quick before I got started with my day, I got stuff to do, but enjoyed a meetup last night, had a couple new people show up, which was really cool. Always nice to see fresh new faces getting out there and joining us on our journey for more freedom, more liberty, and more sovereignty. And I hope you individuals out there who are listening to this, join me on this journey of self-discovery, self-learning, and, you know, just liberation from the chains that have been the indoctrination of your entire life of government has to exist for whatever reasons people try to, you know, justify. And I hope this channel can give you guys more uh, talking points for when you are having conversations with these type of people that you can point out the illogical fallacies in their justifications for why these institutions and governmental structures need to exist. Um, but uh, anyway, hope you guys have a good day and see you next time.